We are living in an age where the sands are shifting as we speak, and we feel like we need to shape new answers to what it means to be a human being. To do so outside of a context of dialogue with Jewish voices for the last thousands of years would be inexcusable. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoidi. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Rabbi Leon Morris, president of Pardes Institute for Jewish Studies. Leon was the founding director of the Skirball Center for Adult Jewish Learning at Temple Emanuel in Manhattan, now the Temple Emanuel Stryker Center. He has served as vice president for the Israel programs at the Shalom Hartman Institute and was a faculty member at Hebrew Union College. You may have read Leon's fascinating article in the most recent edition of Sources, the Journal of Jewish Ideas of the Hartman Institute, titled In Defense of Surrender in Liberal Jewish Life. In that essay, Leon argues that liberal Jews, those that feel a connection to observant Jewish life, but not strictly an alachic connection, must submit to the notion of obligation and duty as much as they do to their value of personal choice. To do less, he says, will lead to the further decline of liberal Judaism. He joins our podcast to talk about this and much, much more. Take a listen. Some thinkers have described modernity as the relentless march towards the emancipation of the individual. And in fact, we have increased the agency and power of humans to levels that were unimaginable a few centuries ago. The promise of modernity was that as individual rights kept expanding in ever-concentric circles and reached more people and more dimensions of our lives, we'd be happier, more fulfilled, and prosperous. So what went wrong? Why aren't we? This is the topic that Rabbi Leon Morris dissects in a text in the journal Sources published by the Shalom Hartman Institute, which is as beautifully written as it is erudite. So Leon, what went wrong? Why was the promise of modernity not fulfilled? Or maybe it was, and I'm getting it wrong? First of all, I just want to say it's great to be on your podcast. I'm a fan of your podcast, and I'm a huge fan of your writing, Andres. So that compliment to the essay is particularly coming from you. It's very meaningful. So thank you. Um, thank you. What went wrong? I think that one of the things that I try to respond to both in the article and in my life's work is a sense of isolated individualism and a sense that we're suffering from what some have called the tyranny of choice. We have so many choices that it is depriving us of the meaning that comes from obligation. And I think those two aspects 
I don't know if I would say modernity went wrong, but these are challenges that we need to address. We need to address them in many areas of our lives. We certainly need to address them in religious life with regard to the isolated individualism of modernity. I think we need to spend time thinking about what it means to build communities of meaning. And that is connected to the second factor because communities have expectations of each other. Communities have norms. Communities have rituals that reinforce their sense of belonging in the community. And I think we've kind of let our agency and choice, we've let it eclipse every other important value that we have. So basically, we we went from a situation in which we had no choice, in which In other words, we had no freedom of choice, and of course, nobody wants that, but now we don't have freedom from choice. In other words, it's what you call the tyranny of choice, meaning everything is a personal choice. And in the pre-modern world, maybe what happened was that, yes, you didn't have choice, but your place in society, your place in the community gave you meaning. In other words, your meaning, the meaning of your life was given by the role you had to fulfill in the fabric of society, in your belonging to that society. And that's probably why Socrates prefers death to exile, because he's, he's nobody without his police, without his city, without his community. He's, he, he'd rather be dead. Now, that role in society is not given to us. It's as if we individuals, we have to build our own place and our own sense of meaning. And that creates a lot of anxiety, doesn't it? It does. It does. And yet few of us would want to go back or try to recreate that pre-modern experience. I mean, that's exactly what fundamentalists around the world are doing. We're left with not being able to put the genie back into the bottle and not wanting to put the genie back in the bottle. And even if you did put the genie back in the bottle, you still would be making a choice. In other words, I can say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm tired of choice. I'm going to go and live in a Satmar community and whatever. That would still be a choice. So it would be like making a choice not to choose would be like following a sign that says be spontaneous. It's a paradox. You cannot choose. And I think that paradox is something that I tried to play with in this essay. And it's something that I experience in my own religious life, which is basically choosing to feel commanded. So why don't you walk us through the argument you make in this article, in this essay? Sure. So I found a very helpful referent to be this amazing article by a psychoanalyst named Emmanuel Ghent, who wrote Uh, an article about masochism in 1990. And in the article, he distinguishes between surrender and submission. And Mm -hmm. he basically argues, it's an incredible essay, and he argues that what human beings really seek is surrender. Surrender is very affirming of the self. It's about letting down defenses. It's about openness. Something like falling in love in a way. Ah, beautiful. When you love somebody, you're surrendering to to that feeling. You're not fighting it. You just choose to surrender. And he contrasts it with submission, which is all about being under the control and the power of someone else. And he says, you know, masochism is the distortion of choosing the more readily available cousin of surrender in submission. 
rather than what we really seek, which is surrender. And I read that and I thought this immediately, it made me think of this classic Talmudic text that many of your listeners will know of God holding uh, Shabbat 88a, God holding the mountain over the people of Israel and saying, if you accept my Torah, great. And if not, this will be your grave. And then the people say, okay, we accept. Yeah. And maybe I'll come back to that. So I immediately thought of that text. And I thought that in a way, if Ghent is describing a psychoanalytic distortion where people really want surrender, but they choose submission because it's more readily available, then what we have in liberal religious life, and I think this is true for liberal Christians as well as liberal Jews and and probably liberal adherents of all faiths, we have a kind of an inverse play of this in which we are so averse to submission. We're so unwilling to be part of a religious system that's about submission that we end up rejecting surrender as well. And I try to argue in the piece that we need surrender. We need a notion. We need a way of keeping our autonomy in check, of having it balanced with other values. We need to undo this dichotomy between, and it's almost like a caricature of religious life as being about submission. And we have to kind of be more open to the notion of mitzvah, of commandment, and a notion of mitzvah that's not about submission. And I try to make the argument that what is it we need to surrender? We need to surrender our defenses. We need to surrender our time. We need to surrender our notion of isolated individualism. And I think really the piece is arguing for a non-orthodoxy, which is thick and all-encompassing and serious and open to the notion of feeling obligated, of feeling a sense of duty. Not because that obligation comes in a kind of submissive way, but it might even come from the self or from the community. But this notion that of must and ought. And it's kind of interesting because there's another paradox here. You don't want to surrender because you're afraid of losing your individuality. But paradoxically, you can't fully develop your individuality if you don't surrender. In a way, if we go back to the issue of love, yes, you can decide never to fall in love because being in love means losing part of your autonomy, losing your distance, but then you're missing on love, which is a key part of who we are as human beings, right? So in a way, we enter into a paradox in which surrender becomes a necessary condition for individuality in a way. Yes. And Ghent himself argues that there there is no notion of acceptance without surrender. He talks about surrender as a way of accepting with our whole being in joyous spirit. And in the essay, I heard in that something uh, very similar to the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, his read on that story of God holding the mountain over the people's head. And Levinas calls this a beyond freedom. He writes, uh, what might appear as not the non-freedom of acceptance under coercion is actually a beyond freedom 
that makes the decision of acceptance so overwhelmingly right that our choice to say I will do feels as though there really was no choice at all. Sorry, that was me, not Levinas. Levinas said the Jewish text starts in a non-freedom, which far from being slavery or childhood is a beyond freedom. And then I write what might appear as the non-freedom of acceptance under coercion is actually a beyond freedom. And this is where your example, Andres, of love, of falling in love is, is perfect. It's an acceptance of, I really have no choice. But yet the Jewish and non-Jewish religious thinking has had a problem in articulating that. Sort of you talk about in your article, and this is going to be a very philosophical episode, but, you know, I love this. So I hope the listeners will indulge us. You talk about heteronomy and so there's heteronomy means the norms for life. Your choices come more from outside hetero, from other, from another dimension, God, the king, whatever. Autonomy is you as an individual decide, right? And that you are the author of your own norms. Now, in your essay, you talk about, is there a third way? Or are we caught in this tag of war between heteronomy and autonomy? I want us to give up the tug of war. I want us to leave that dichotomy aside and to say that as Jews, when we think of Torah and mitzvot, we're really talking about something that combines elements of both heteronomy and autonomy. And I think there's a basis for this in rabbinic texts. And I think that personally, I think many of us experience that. I'll just give an example to kind of bring us down from uh, philosophical clouds for a moment. Each of my, both of my parents have passed away. And when I was in the process of saying Kaddish for them, I knew something about the history of Kaddish. I read or tried to read twice Leon Weaseltier's book. I know that this is a relatively late development as in Jewish law, and I knew the story that it was based on. But none of that history and none of that literary critique took away from the notion that I needed to recite Kaddish for them, that this was one last thing that I could do for them. And I enjoyed that sense of obligation. Right. And so there, I'm kind of having my cake and eating it too. I don't want to abandon the historical analysis of how this practice came to be in Jewish life. And right. yeah, I want to feel commanded. I want to feel obligated. It's kind of, you believe in biblical criticism. You have your, who was it that had his Tanakh all marked with who were the different authors? But when you go to Shul, you don't take that Tanakh. That's good for the academia. That's- but for Shul, you want the connection that even if it's pretend, <laughs> that gives you the connection. That book is sacred and you're relating to something sacred. It gives you something that the scientific academic text doesn't. And you're not denying the scientific academic thing. You're just, in a way, compartmentalizing yourself in that way. These are all faces of the Torah, right? right. We say there are 70 perspectives, 70 faces of the Torah. So the critical, analytical those are among those 70 faces. And so is the kind of faithful reading. Right. I think the philosopher that helps us the most with 
breaking these dichotomies is Franz Rosenzweig. Yeah. And I think that he already a hundred years ago provides us with the framework to break out of this division between either the law is commanded to me by an outside presence or it comes out of my own choice. And I, I think also, you know, he did it with the example that you just cited, that how do we embrace biblical criticism and still accept the authority in some sense of the text? So biblical critics have usually called the editor uh, the redactor, yeah. right? So that the classic uh, biblical critical theory was JEPD for yeah. different authors, and it was sewn together by an R redactor. Yeah. And it was Rosenzweig who said, let's understand R as Rabbeinu, as yeah. our rabbi, <laughs> because I think there was something so postmodern. I mean, he was quintessentially modern, right? Early right. 20th century. But the moves that he was making of saying, no, I don't want either way. I want both. That right. strikes me as a very Sort of is, is what we call the disenchantment of the world. Like in a way, modernity disenchants the world. Like the pre-modern world was full of demons and ghosts and gods and external forces and magical forces, as it were. We disenchanted all that. And it's kind of now we want to re-enchant it a little bit more. And without being naive, without believing in, you know, gnomes and, and <laughs> demons and the like, but we want that dimension of awe, of surprise, of not fully understanding stuff, of mystery. And, and that texture is what I think we need to recapture in right. liberal Judaism so that this sense of duty isn't always, it can't be reduced to, do you really think that God cares if you do X, Y, or Z? Because the answer to that may be, no, of course not. But there can still be compelling reasons to feel right. a sense of duty and a sense of obligation. I'm wondering, isn't this a massive failure of religious education or the different religions that they can't really articulate that? They either sub fully submit to modernity and they present a vision of Judaism that is non-normative, that is just some diffuse values that happen to coincide with my <laughs> political leanings, or they present a fully fundamentalist view that is like the minutiae of uh, Al-Aha or an exclusionary vision of Judaism. In other words, haven't we failed at articulating what you're describing? I don't know that I would call it a failure, but I think we're at a different moment in history. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way the movements articulated themselves worked for the reality that we were living in a century ago but probably no longer. This, I should say, yeah. I'm just, I'm influenced on this way in which the denominations need to kind of refresh their ideology by my friend Danny Schiff's new book, 21st Century Judaism. I'm also aware this piece, this essay was in the journal kind of deliberately accompanied by a beautiful essay by my colleague, Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove, the rabbi at Park Avenue Synagogue. And he's dealing in his piece from, let's say, the front lines as a congregational rabbi in the conservative movement. He is exploring exactly what is or what isn't the commitment to halakha in most conservative communities 
And how do modern Jews understand what makes them gravitate toward mitzvot? There's some common ground between our two articles in some yeah, way, elementary yeah. and in some ways. He calls are. it instead of the chosen people, the, cho the choosing people. The, let's choose normativism. Let's choose commandment. But let me challenge a piece here that I don't think that the Orthodox world is getting it either. Like the Orthodox life and them. This is a stereotype the same way what we're talking about. The liberal trends is a stereotype and we're, we're just taking things to the extreme to make the argument. But I, I see a dearth of meaning seeking in the Orthodox world. In other words, the liberal world is very weak on normativism and that impacts the seeking of meaning. The Orthodox world covers everything with normativism. Everything is like the minutiae of Jewish law the obsessive fixation with little details of the halacha, in fact, they may be masking a lack of meaning there. I think you're right. I think you're right. Look, this is why I find it so exciting to be in pluralistic spaces, because right. both parts of the community are lacking something. There's something incomplete. We are truly complementary. That's right, why I right, love right. places like Pardes and like Limud, right. and like Hillel, because we have something to learn. We have something to learn about right. uh, the power of regulated, normative Jewish behaviors from the Orthodox. Many Orthodox could learn from the intentionality, the mindfulness that liberal Jews are bringing to those practices that they're doing. You mentioned before something about the movements, the, kind of the liberal conservative reform. And I would include there, by the way, the Orthodox movement. They're all modern. We're all modern Jews. Even the Haredim are modern Jews. We're all, as I said, we're all reform. All these movements were created in the 19th century, and they're all responses to modernity, right? To the realities of Jews in Central Europe in the 19th century. And as you said, now the reality is different. How would you describe the main difference between the historical context that they faced when they created those movements and the ones that we're facing now? Again, more eloquent treatment of this is in Danny Schiff's book. I think that we're no longer seeking to figure out how we can be completely American or completely modern and Jewish. We're, it's almost the inverse. We're so thoroughly modern, we're so thoroughly American or Canadian that we, uh, we're trying to figure out where's the Jewishness. In a way, our, our starting place is the inverse. I remember someone saying, uh, this is decades ago, that reform Judaism needs to focus not on reforming Judaism any longer, but on reforming Jews, uh, getting Jews to now re-embrace their Jewish life in a fuller way. I, for me, and you don't have to agree, but for me, the main change is not really that the Jews, yes, what you say, it's true. Jews are, the pendular swung completely in one direction. And the one, there's the idea, let's Let's bring back. We're thoroughly modern and we lost that dimension. But I think that there's something deeper there, which is that the human being of the 21st century is a radically different human being than the one of the 19th century. Going to what we were talking at the beginning, the, the notion that personal autonomy has become the center value of society and we're 
to the point and technology and genetics and neuroscience and artificial intelligence, stuff like that, are making us rethink what does it mean to be human? Not even what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to be human? And I was having this conversation with my son about chat GPG, and he says, it's not really intelligence. He really has a lot of memory and he connects the memories. And I said, so, and what is intelligence? Isn't the same thing that happens in your brain? You have a lot of memories and you connect them, right? And I think this really goes to what being human really means. And it seems to me that religious thought is not anywhere near these questions, right? Like even the dilemma that you just mentioned is a 20th century dilemma, right? Like how do we, how we American Jewish? Okay, fine. But now it's like a different thing. How, what does it mean to be human? And then what can Judaism tell us about the human condition in the 21st century? You have to read Danny Schiff's new book. Because I know, I have it. I have it in my kingdom. That's what it is all about and how ill-equipped Judaism is to deal with these very current questions about what it means to be a human being and how the movements are focused on, they're focused on these outmoded questions and not on the really urgent questions of the moment. And how is part of this? trying to deal with that, with this, with all these issues we've been discussing, the search for meaning, the redefinition of what Judaism means in the 21st century, the personal anguish of freedom and choice. We're not disconnected from our past, and the past is the fuel and the content that leads to creativity and adaptation. So what we're really about at Pardes is what I like to call the Beit Midrashification of Jewish life, that we want to center Jewish life in the Beit Midrash, the study hall. And we want to say that these texts have enormous relevance and incredible meaning for our time. doesn't mean you have to take them literally. It certainly doesn't mean that you need to ignore their history. It doesn't mean that you have to accept their authority, but this is the language that the Jewish people has shaped over centuries for dealing with the basic question of what it means to be human. So even when we're living in an age where the the sands are shifting as we speak, and we feel like we need to shape new answers to what it means to be a human being, to do so outside of a context of dialogue with Jewish voices for the last thousands of years would be inexcusable. Right. In one of the podcasts, we were talking about temporal narcissism, right? Like this idea that we have discussions that are centered only in the present and we're losing the voice of the past and also the voice of the future in a way. This is what uh, Chesterton calls the democracy of the dead. (laughs) that our ancestors also receive a vote. A vote. They have a voice that we should take seriously. But Pardes is, what, 50 years old? 50 years old. Yeah. And in fact, it was one of the first venues that were, in a way, post-denominational or multi-denominational or whatever we want to call them. And what was the principle of trying to create a non-denominational space? Yeah. Uh, 1972, this incredibly idealistic, young Ole Hadash, who's become a good friend of mine, Rabbi Mike Swirsky, 
he moves to Israel and he has this idea of why isn't there a Beit Midrash? Why isn't there a house of study where every Jew can come and learn? Men and women. We were one of the first places in the world where women could study alongside men, uh, study the classic texts of Bible and Talmud, people of various levels of practice, different denominations, different perspectives, different ages. And that was radical 50 years ago. And thankfully, uh, it's not quite as, as unusual today. And Pardes itself has spawned other kinds of study programs like this. But I think what's still countercultural in Jewish life is how central the act of learning is. I always felt like, for understandable reasons, the American Jewish community rescued and recreated from the Jewish past the wrong institution for American Jews, <laughs> that they took the Beit Tefillah, the house of prayer, and right. they did it again for obvious reasons. We want to be just like Catholics and Protestants, and yeah. they go to worship services, so we'll go to worship services. We won't go as frequently as they go. But the institution of the Jewish past that would have the most resonance for who American Jews are is the Beit Nidrash. You can love the text. You can hate the text. You can be angry at the text. You can agree, disagree. But we're a highly intellectualized community. We're very well read. Most of us love to argue. Those are the founders. Yeah, but there's there's something you're saying that level of engagement is what American Jews need. And yet America as a society is a society that doesn't like intellectualism. It's more of a society of what has social currency in this country is the entrepreneur, the pioneer, the not the person who sits down and thinks. And I'm worried that Jews, you know, was it Tolstoy who said it was they like everybody else just a little bit more so? I like, thought it was Mark Twain, but you who, might be right. Whoever, like one of these quotes that get attributed to him. And I'm wondering whether we're doing the same. In mm. other words, who do we lionize in the Jewish world? The entrepreneurs, the people that have this new idea, this new program, this new engagement tool, and not the people who actually wrestle with the text and work on questions of meaning. One of my questions at AJFN actually is how to make the community care more about issues of meaning and intellectual debate and conceptual frameworks for understanding Jewish life. If you have any ideas, I'll... You wrote a fantastic piece, Andres, three years ago that resonated so deeply with me and with my colleagues at Pardes, in which you argued that Jewish life already needed to be rebooted before the pandemic. And when you drill down to what exactly needs to happen in the American Jewish community, part of what I remember from your beautiful essay in Tablet was that we needed to invest more in ideas and we needed to invest more in the study of texts that are connected, that are the source of those ideas. I think that's a radical message. I don't think the American Jewish community 
has really rallied behind that. And so so radical that nobody adopted it. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But uh, yeah, we're very much into programs. But we're into programs for, for a number of reasons. I think that we're into programs because many of us are afraid of these conversations about ideas because A, we're not equipped to discuss them. And B, in a deeper way, we're so anxious about Jewish continuity, quote unquote, that our obsession is to lower entry barriers to Jewish life. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're damning down Judaism because we're afraid that if we don't do, people are going to find it too daunting, too exclusionary. And we don't want to define what being Jewish is. Like a message like the one you put in your essay about surrender, about choosing to adopt a more normative lifestyle, it's going to make a lot of people nervous. You can say, oh, young people won't want that. So let's not put that out there. Let's not scare people away. And I think that's self-defeating in a way. But I think we can work on several fronts at once. Of course, we want to be we want to be open. We want to be hospitable. But ultimately, if we're welcoming, we want to be welcoming people to something that has depth and sophistication. Sometimes I feel like I feel like in the American Jewish community that we're we're so focused on welcoming people in that we haven't asked simultaneously the important question of well, what are we asking them? What are we inviting them into? What's here's, the content yeah. here? And here's where I think they're not opposed. I think they're complementary, that we want to build a thick Jewish life that is about texts and about ideas. And that doesn't mean that the entry bar is higher. It just means that there's a longer road that we're inviting people to travel down. In a way, it's as if you welcome people to the community with their Bill of Rights, but you're not welcoming with the Bill of Duties. And paradoxically, I think that people want to know what their duties are towards the community. And if they don't, we need to tell them. This is, you're part of a community that entails, and you're going to feel fuller as a, as a human being if you feel a sense of duty towards your community. It's not that we're oppressing you by putting du- duties on you. We're actually helping you gain a dimension of life that you don't have today. I think that's the case. And I think that we, we liberal Jews have that when it comes to social justice activism. Right. But probably not to any other aspect of Jewish life. And so maybe we can build on that. I think the next step might be uh, chesed, community acts of loving kindness and support for each other. How right. we let's distinguish ourselves by taking very seriously how we treat each other, how we help those who are sick, those who are vulnerable on Jewish Funders Network. Let's focus on tithing. Let's focus on right. giving sufficiently to uh, to tzedakah. And let's not be stuck in an 1885 paradigm of ritual. 1885 was the Pittsburgh platform. Right, 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 right. Certain ways, I think we're still kind of stuck with thinking that ritual is rote and that it's even an impediment to spirituality. And let's let's look for the ways in which 
Jewish texts create a kind of fabric, the warp and the, is it the woof? The warp and the woof are both ritual and ethical mitzvot. You read Leviticus 19, and it's so seamless. It's the ritual and the the ethical, yeah. Between the two. There's a connection between, or there can be, a connection between Shabbat and loving your neighbor. And I would say one of the problems that we have in the Jewish community, both I would say what the so-called left and the so-called right, is a reductionism of Judaism. On the left, for lack of a better term, you have a reductionism of Judaism to a certain set of ethical principles like tikkun olam and the like. In the right, you have a reductionism of Judaism to either a set of ritual commandments, practices. ritual practices, or a sort of an ethnocratic tribalist identity. And Judaism is is so much than these two extremes, right? Is the wrestling with it. This is why we need each other and to learn yeah. from each other. But, you know, my article, and I would say much of my focus is on the liberal, the non-Orthodox community and wanting to have a version of non-Orthodox Judaism, which is thicker and richer and more committed to study and more committed to regular practice and to be willing to reassess our relationship with the notion of duty and obligation. And this has been, I mentioned Rosenzweig, offering what I think are very uh, helpful ways to make that connection but there have been others as well. I mean, my teacher, Eugene Barowitz, Allah HaShalom, redefined what we mean by the autonomous self. And that was an incredibly creative and important way to say that the autonomous Jewish self isn't the isolated individual that I was speaking about earlier. Rather, it's a Jew who takes into account Jewish history and the Jewish people and my sense of what God expects from me, and several other factors. That, I think, is one incredibly rich and creative way of addressing the problem that we find ourselves with. Uh, And I, I think there are others, but I think that we haven't yet created communities that are really supporting one another in what I would argue is an embrace of surrender and helping each other to find a sense of holiness and find a sense of community and find a sense of going beyond myself. And my loving critique to to many of the emerging communities is that in many cases, they're based on a very charismatic rabbi, but they're not really going to the depths of what you described. In other words, I'm going to whatever new, very fashionable shul, you know, exists now, but they are proposing a very charismatic, engaging rabbi, not really a different model of what being Jewish should be. It's a deficit that we should cover somehow. Let me shift gears for a second, because I know we could talk about this forever, and I want to cover something else. You're you're now in the center of Jerusalem, not the geographic center, you're, you're in Tel Piot. How can this different approach to Judaism 
help us heal some of the deep divisions and the conflicts that we see in Israel today? It can certainly provide us with a common language to bridge the increasing divide between American Jews and Israeli Jews. And common language doesn't necessarily mean Hebrew, but these these texts. Your students are mostly Israelis now, right? I'm like, no, our students are uh, mostly diaspora. I see. Okay. Who come for a year or uh-huh. a summer or a week or two years. And we're a kind of incubator for a thicker Jewish life when they return home, mostly to America and to other places in the diaspora. There are exciting things happening alongside in this beautiful Jewish renaissance, this Hidchatshut Yehudit phenomenon here of the last 20 or 30 years. And in a certain way, inspired by your question, I'm thinking of this incredible essay that Mordechai Kaplan wrote in 1948 in which he's trying to answer the question of, so what's the meaning of being an American Jew now that there's a Jewish state? He says that nothing can replace the magic of the return to one's homeland and the revival of Hebrew language and so on. But American Jews in their own way can recreate, he doesn't use this term in 1948, but can recreate a thickness of Jewish life that's compatible with America. And I think there is something noteworthy for the American Jewish community to look very closely at this renaissance of Jewish life that's happening outside of orthodoxy in Israel. And to think about not how we reproduce that, because, again, we don't have the American Jewish community has other strengths to draw from. It's a creative, thick, enticing, exciting vibrant, new form of Jewish life. Now, I think it's impossible to do that without being rooted in the classic texts of right. Jewish tradition. But- right. And it's it's interesting because you're talking about a common language. And I always thought of this paradox, like Israeli Jews and diaspora Jews are, quote unquote, united or connected by being Jewish. But in fact, If you really look at it, we have more in common as modern individuals than we have as Jews. We live our Judaism way more different than what that we live our work life or family life. It is as though the thing that most divides us is actually what we have in common. And to go back to build a shared language and a shared identity based on the text we share, I think it. It's so simple and yet so revolutionary in a way. I think one of the incredible things about this Jewish renaissance in Israel is that it kind of is a rebuttal to Sartre's notion that the Jew is the Jew because of the anti-Semite, that to allow Jewish life to flourish in a Jewish majority is really, uh, that's an important lesson. And that I think has some carryover because anti-Semitism, a rise of anti-Semitism in America, notwithstanding the American Jewish community does seem to be the golden age of uh, Jewish history. And so, again, we don't need the anti-Semite. We can be proactively embracing our Jewish treasures. So going back to the question of how the human being is changing, 
compare young Leon Morris, you're still young, but the Leon Morris of 30 years ago when you were a student at Pardes with the 20-something years old that comes now to Pardes. What do they have in common and in which ways they're radically different, if at all? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. I think what they have in common is this notion that they want to get the education, the Jewish education that they didn't get earlier in their lives, that they didn't get as children. And that's true of uh, both people that come from a day school background and people that come from a public school background. I think all of us are, again, borrowing from the language of Franz Rosenzweig, all of us are moving from the periphery to the center. We're all on this journey. That was true 30 years ago when I was a student at Pardes, and it's true today, an openness to this journey of creating for myself a richer Jewish life than I grew up with and a more learned Jewish life than I grew up with. That's what we share in common. We're different in all kinds of ways. I'm trying to answer the question and be as positive as possible. <laughs> I think this generation has a lot more anxiety than we had. This generation has more entitlement than we had. I think that this generation is much more progressive than we were. I think the whole notion of identity is so much more fluid. And that applies to gender and sexuality, but it also applies to the identity that I am Jewish. That's what I am. And identity for a younger generation, it's fluid and it's multivalent. The Jewish is a piece. And maybe if it was a piece of identity for us 30 years ago, living alongside a few other major identities, I, I think now it's just a much more complex weave. And the anxiety may be precisely coming from the fact that they don't just need to choose between three or four different identities, but they need to actually build their own identity. It's a sort of a self-built there's a beautiful book by Alain Ehrenberg. It's called La Fatigue de Tressois, The Weariness of Self. I quote it basically in every episode because I think it showcases the anguish of these young people that you're mentioning, the pressure that they have of needing to build themselves. That's why the book is called The Weariness of Self. And it says that very unique 21st century mental health issue of depression and anxiety weaved together has a lot to do with that permanent pressure of creating yourself and, and showing yourself to the world and all the time upholding and defending and regenerating your uniqueness in the face of the world. And you basically coming and saying, well, I have a way of dealing with anxiety, which is surrender, which is thoughtful I, surrender. I was thinking in listening to you, I was thinking of this amazing song by Kobe O's the musician and yeah. songwriter who's part of this Jewish renaissance that's happening in Israel. He has a song, and Brad will have to put this in the notes, a link <laughs> to it. Makom has a version with uh, with translation called Zalman. And Zalman is the quintessential person of this generation that we're speaking about. And he gets confused about his value he gets confused about what his role is in his life. And the last stanza of the song, his father is on his deathbed. And Zalman asks his father, who am I? And his father says, you're always getting so confused. 
you're my son. And it's very powerful. And the song itself is tied in with the performance of mitzvot. It's about the things that root us in being my father's son, being my mother's son. It's about building a sukkah. And it's about Shabbat. And it's about family life. It's so many of his songs, particularly on that album, Mizmorei Nevuchim, songs for the perplexed. It's brilliant. And um, looking at this generation and the many achievements of Pardes, what gives you hope? I'm very inspired by the countercultural move of people of all ages that come to Pardes and those who are on this journey to create a Jewish life that feels compatible for the moment we're living in, but which is serious, which is textured, which is thick. That gives me a lot of hope. I think the very openness of coming to a place like Pardes uh, gives me hope. And then the actual learning that they're doing and the way in which they are growing and the way in which they return home, determined to build a better Jewish life and the way in which they're inspired to innovate in creating new kinds of platforms to engage with Judaism and Jewish texts more seriously, that gives me hope. Thanks so much to Leon Morris. In our show notes, you can find a link to his article, the one we referenced from the journal sources, as well as many of the other works mentioned in this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at JFunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Spokoini. I leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis, who wrote, you're never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. So keep setting goals, keep dreaming new dreams, and join us next time on What Gives. What Gives.